0: today. It is a, a joy and a privilege to be back with you again in 1 John after a long break. Uh, the letter we consider today was written by John, the beloved Apostle of Christ, and he wrote it to encourage Christians in the middle of confusion. See, false, church, false teachers had come out of the true church, and they were working to confuse the Christians to draw away members into a Gnostic perversion of Christianity. And John tells us at the beginning that he has written this letter so that Christians may know that we truly belong to Christ. And so to help us, he gives us real-life practical tests to examine the genuineness of our faith. And Chapter 1 begins with the first test, which is the confession of sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Those who truly belong to Christ indeed know their sins and hate their sins because they're incompatible with God's holy character. Those who belong to Christ indeed confess their sins and trust in Christ's precious blood as their only grounds of forgiveness and likewise of sanctification, growth in holiness. Chapter 2 then begins with the test of deliberate obedience to Christ's commands. Those who truly belong to Christ do not ignore or grumble at what he requires of us. Instead, those who know Christ love his commandments and strive to organize and order their whole life in obedience to his words and ways. Chapter 2 continues with a third test of the genuine Christian, which is the test of love for the saints. Those who love Christ indeed love their brothers and sisters who are in Christ as an overflow of the love that Christ has poured into their hearts, and as a, an expression of love to Christ through love for his people. And now we come to the middle of 1 John chapter 2, where John turns to explain to the saints why he is writing, and to spur them on to love the Father all the more. He's identified his audience already as genuine believers, and so with his audience in view he turns to comfort and to encourage them. He answers the questions that confront the conscience of those who take these tests seriously. How is it that I can measure up to the standard of a genuine Christian? He answers the questions that confront those who are confused by the variety of religions that call themselves Christian while differing from each other on foundational issues. How do I know that I truly belong to God? And he answers the questions that confront those who know, indeed, that they have received God's mercy how then shall we live and so with this in mind i want us to read together in john's first epistle 1 john chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 i write to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This is the perfect, holy, inspired word of God. Let us go to him in prayer to seek his help in understanding it. God our Father in heaven we come to you now confessing our need of your spirit's help we come to you confessing that we in our own strength are incapable of understanding your word and applying it rightly in our lives so god we ask that your spirit would cause your word to shine brightly for us that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word that you would give us hearts that you would give us hearts to understand and a will to obey what we see in your word. God, we ask that your spirit would apply your word to the hearts of all who hear today. We thank you for the privilege and the treasure that you have given to us in Christ, that in him we have the forgiveness of sins, that in him we have reconciliation with you. God, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who do not love the world and the things of the world, but a people who are marked out from the world by our deep and abiding love for you. God, we marvel at your love displayed for us in Christ, and we ask that you would cause us to respond in in heartfelt, sacrificial love towards you, our God who made us and redeemed us. God, we pray for those who have not yet come to know redemption and salvation in Christ, we ask that you would cause them today to hear your word, to be convicted, and to respond to you in faith and to receive life. We ask that you would glorify yourself in our midst as we honor you in the hearing of your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, today as we uh, begin this passage, we will consider our our exposition under two sections. First, in verses 12 through 14, we consider our confidence in Christ. Our confidence in Christ. See, this section comes after three tests for the genuineness of our reconciliation to the Father. And this passage will be followed again by a warning against antichrists that have gone out from their own church, striving to deceive them. And so, sandwiched between these two potentially difficult sections... John explains his purpose for writing. He's not writing here to rebuke those remaining within the church as false professors or antichrists. Rather, he's writing to reassure them with the confidence that they should have in Christ. John uses many tools here in his writing to strike this reassuring tone. The first tool that he uses is the perfect tense. All but two of these verbs are in the perfect tense. And what that means is that they describe past completed actions with results that are still affected through the present time. This is significant to this tone of comfort and reassurance as the believers are being confronted by the antichrists who have departed from the church, claiming to know the truth that the Christians are missing, saying that they need to walk in a new way, in a new truth. And Paul is reassuring the believers. He says to them, remember what God has done in you, You have been forgiven and you are reconciled. You have known God and you have fellowship with him. You have overcome the devil and you are strong in Christ. He's reminding them of all that they have and all that they are in Christ. And so John addresses this reassurance to three groups here he addresses it to little children, to fathers, and to young men. Now, who are these three groups? While the fathers are those who are seasoned and mature in faith, and the young men are those who are growing in Christian maturity, John's use of little children here most naturally refers indeed to all believers and not only to those who are brand new to the faith. Just at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1, John says, "...my little children, these things I write to you." And there he is clearly referring to all believers, using the same word for little children... As in verse 12. And so, John wants to reassure all genuine Christians of the first things first. So he says to all believers, You are reconciled to God through Christ. Read with me in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What good news this is, brothers and sisters. Our sins have been forgiven. And what's more, they've been forgiven for God's name's sake. Not because we are good or because we deserve forgiveness in any way in ourselves, but so that God would be glorified for our redemption. And so, because God has forgiven us for the sake of his own name, for the sake of his own glory, we can stand confident knowing that he will not revoke his mercy to us and that no charge raised by any enemy can stand against us. In John's second address to the little children at the end of verse 13, he explains the consequence of this forgiveness that we've received. He says there, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. See, the forgiveness of our sins has reconciled us to God, where we stood before as enemies of God by our sinful rebellion against Him, while we related to Him before only as our Creator and our Judge, God sent his own son to bear the condemnation that we deserve and to adopt us as his own sons and daughters according to the precious blood of Christ. Because we have been forgiven of our sins, we now relate to God as our Father. What a privilege it is to be counted as sons and daughters of the living God. And so John says, all believers, you have been reconciled to God through Christ. Let us remember to treasure that today. John turns his attention secondly to fathers within the church, saying to those who are mature in faith, you are united to the eternal Lord. John's message to fathers is identical both times. In verse 13, he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And again in verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now John wants us to catch here the connection to chapter verse one, chapter one, verse one of this same letter. Take a look there with me, chapter one, verse one. He writes that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. See, this eternal existence that the disciples had heard, had looked upon, had touched with their own hands was Jesus himself, the Christ, the incarnate word of life. In his eternal self-existence, Christ is God himself, made manifest in the world. And so John wants to reassure these seasoned believers here, as they have walked through the difficulties of the Christian life, as they've borne persecution, as they've seen the prosperity of the wicked... Now they're being told that they've been missing the truth all along, just just by a shade, missing the truth about God. So he reassures them by pointing not to themselves, but to the eternal self-existence of Christ on whom they have believed. In this one sentence, as we hear of the one who is from the beginning, we're reminded of Christ's eternality, of his eternity immutability, he cannot change, of his faithfulness, he always does what he says he will do, and of his deity, he is indeed God incarnate. And Jesus is mighty to save, he is unchangeable, and he is trustworthy. He is the rock of ages, the firm foundation upon which we can stand, unshaken in any storm. We're also reminded here of the blessing that it is to say that in Christ we know God, John says that three times in these three verses. that The people of God have known God. And that's something that's so easy for us to gloss over as obvious and insignificant. But John doesn't want us to see it that way. We should never lose the wonder that it is to say that we know God. This knowing that he describes is a personal, relational knowing. It is fellowship with God. And it's not something that's reserved only for some select few super-Christians, because John applies that same knowing of the Father to the little children, which is all Christians, in verse 13. And what's more, this knowing of God isn't proven by some kind of subjective or ecstatic experience where we just feel like we've suddenly felt the presence of God, and so that's how we know that we know Him. But instead, knowing God is a certain reality for all who trust in Christ. John said earlier in this chapter that we can know that we know God because of the life of faith and the fruit of faith that are produced in us by the Spirit's work. What a profound mystery it is that we who are in Christ through faith have truly and unchangeably known God personally and directly. He calls me child, and I call him father. He knows me, and he reveals himself to me in his word. Because of Christ, I have unashamed fellowship with the creator of the universe. It's an amazing reality that's so easy for us to become, uh, to become numb to. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer described the confidence that this knowledge provided to a friend of his. He writes of a conversation. He says, "'I walked in the sunshine with a scholar,' who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I have known God, and they haven't. This is the confidence that John wants the mature Christian to walk in. Whatever anyone else may say or do, I have known God. Everything else is ultimately insignificant. John finally turns his attention to the young men, saying to those who are beginning to grow in faith that you are strong in the Lord. In the middle of verse 13, John writes, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. See, this is the consequence of what John applied to all believers back in verse 12. Because your sins have been forgiven, you have overcome the wicked one. In Christ, you are strong against Satan. His weapons of deception, His flaming darts of doubt, His accusations, all of them are worthless because of the redemption that we have in Christ. And so we can stand firm, trusting in Christ, remembering that the evil one has no weapon that can stand against us. John expands his message to these growing believers, the young men, in verse 14. He says again, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God is abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, in view of the general message to all believers of verse 13, that we have all known the Father, John adds to the growing believers that they are strong against Satan because the Word of God abides in them. Because you have heard God's Word in Scripture, because you have trusted and received the message handed down by the prophets and the apostles, and because you hold fast to it now, God's Word remains in you. In you. It gives you the strength and the weapons that you need to stand firm against those who would harass your faith. Those who would come against you with false doctrines and false accusations. Stand firm on the solid rock by building your life on Christ's words. So here in these verses, John has comforted the believers with all that we have in Christ. We've been reconciled to the Father through Christ... We've been united to the eternal Lord who never changes and never wavers in his promises. And we are strong in the Lord to stand against the devil and our adversaries in the world. John then turns to warn us against love for the world. In our second section, he reminds us of the supremacy of our inheritance. In verses 15 through 17, we see the supremacy of our inheritance. He begins with the command of verse 15, where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, this is something of a jarring command, isn't it? Any Christian who knows at least one Bible verse, what Bible verse do they know? It's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, and here we're told, do not love the world. If we are to be holy as God is holy, how are we supposed to not love the world when he loves the world? And if Paul wrote to Timothy that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if received with thanksgiving, how then are we to reject the things that are in the world? So here we need to understand what it is that John means by the world that we must not love. Scripture uses the word world in three primary ways to refer to three ideas. The first use of world in scriptures is the people that God has made throughout every nation of the world. The world. Now that's what Jesus was referring to in John three sixteen, when he said that God so loved the world, the people that he made in all places. That's the world we are commanded to love, and not the world we are commanded to forsake. So it must not be what is in view here. Secondly, the world in Scripture can refer to the created world, all that God has made in the universe. That's what Paul refers to in 1 Timothy, to be received with thanksgiving. We're commanded all over the scriptures to praise God for his handiwork and creation. So clearly, this forsaking of the world cannot be a forsaking of, of beaches and of forests, of food and of drink, of sunsets and rainbows. The third concept that scripture uses the word world to refer to is the sinful, rebellious system of those who are allied against God. That is what John has in view here. Along with the sinful desires of the human heart as exemplified by those who are of the world, those who are worldly, we are not to live as the godless world does, setting the whole of their affections on the things of this world. John goes on to explain the love of the world that we should avoid in verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, what is this that he's referring to here? If you're reading along in the ESV, you find that it has a different word. It has the word desire. The New King James Version that I'm reading from has the word lust. Both of these are getting at the root of what this word is. It does simply mean desire, but here in its context, it has a negative connotation. It's used here in a derogatory way. These are not desires that are neutral, these are not desires that are God honoring, but these are desires that are disorderly, that are out of order, desires that are ultimately and inherently sinful. And when we use the word lust in our day and age, we commonly have this connotation of something that is primarily sexual in nature. Uh, This passage does not have that as uh, an exclusive category, so we don't want to think that lust here means only something that is sexual, but indeed lust is any desire of the flesh. Um, It is here used negatively, so I think a word that's helpful to us to understand it is the word cravings. We understand that cravings are something that are out of control, something where a desire of the flesh takes control of us, and that cravings are something that are to be controlled and not to be given into. So what are these cravings that he describes? The first that he describes is the sin of indulgence, which is what sinful flesh craves to experience. That is the lust of the flesh. This is living for pleasure and comfort in this world instead of living for the glory of God. We see it in the attitude of the rich fool that Jesus speaks of in Luke 12. He tore down his barns to build bigger barns, and then he said, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And how does it end for him? The Lord comes to him that night and says, Your soul is required of you. What will all of this profit you? Secondly, with the lust of the eyes, we see the sin of covetousness. That is what sinful eyes crave to obtain. Matthew Henry summarized, saying, The eyes are delighted with treasures. Riches and rich possessions are craved by the extravagant eye. This is the lust of covetousness. This includes our common use of the word lust from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said that uh, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And cast it out from you, for it is more profitable that you, before you, that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be cast into hell. This is certainly included in the lust of the eyes. And when we think about David looking from his rooftop on, on Bathsheba, we see that it was at that moment the sin of covetousness where he coveted his neighbor's wife, desiring to have her for himself, failing to be content with what God had already provided for him. And so giving in to the covetousness that led him into adultery, that led him from there into murder as well. Thirdly, we have the sin of pride, what the sinful heart craves to believe. This is the pride of life. It is ambition and boasting and contempt of others, according to Calvin. When we begin to think that we are something, we think that we are important, we think that the world is all about us, and we seek to find our satisfaction in having a good reputation, having a good name for ourselves, being influential and widely respected in the world. John gives us another reason then, in verse 18, to forsake the love of the world. Because the world is deceitful and transient. It's passing away. Look with me in verse, sorry, verse 17, not 18. Verse 17. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. All the desires of it. They ultimately come to nothing. Now, if we want to see a perfect picture of what love for the world looks like, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11, we see how Solomon lived for the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see here, too, the outcome of it. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth or merriness. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor." Then then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. In the midst of all of this excess, all of this indulgence, as Solomon indulged the cravings of the flesh with as much pleasure as the world could offer, Consuming an abundance of the finest food and wine, pleasing himself with one of the largest harems in all of history, and relaxing to be waited on by an extensive staff of servants. He indulged the craving of his eyes, not withholding anything from himself that he set his eyes on to covet. And he indulged himself in the pride of life, making himself to be great. A celebrity of the ancient world, greater than anyone before him in all Jerusalem. And for all this love of the world, what did he find at the end of it? He found emptiness. Living for the best things the world has to offer was only chasing after the wind. Just as John says again in 1 John 2, verse 17, the world is passing away and the lust of it. So what then remains? What is it that will truly satisfy us and leave us fulfilled forever? It's the second half of verse 17 here, where he says, But he who does the will of God abides forever. It is the love of the Father and dwelling within us that indeed will last forever. As we forsake worldly pleasures, as we obey the Father's will, we get to enjoy eternal fellowship with the God who made us for his glory. See, the real issue here is John commands us not to love the world, is what you are loving, what you are living for. What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning, and what is it that occupies your thoughts through the day and lingers in your mind as you lay your head down to rest? Are you living for the things of the world? Are you living for the next decadent meal or the next drink, for sexual gratification, for the next vacation or amusement park trip? Are you living for the next big game, the next movie, or the next episode of your favorite show? Is that what occupies your heart and your mind? Are you living for the better job, the better house, the better neighborhood, the better car? Or are you instead living as one who hopes in Christ? Eager for the next time of prayer? The next opportunity to meditate on the Word? To gather with the saints? Are you looking forward for the next chance you have to serve your brothers and sisters or to tell your neighbors the good news of Christ? Are you carried along each day by God's word as you long to hear Christ say, Well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, we need to see that there are many good gifts in this world that God has given to us for us to enjoy with grateful hearts. And yet those very gifts that God has given can become distractions to us. They can give us the opportunity to love and to live for the gifts instead of the one who gives them. Forgetting all about the one who made us and gives us good gifts for His glory, that we might enjoy Him forever. You can live a wholesome, conservative life, but if it's lived without reference to God, if it's focused on how you can enjoy the good life for your own sake, then the end is destruction. But if instead our hearts overflow with gratitude for these good things in life as undeserved gifts from God, responding to Him in faith and love, then the the love of the Father abides in us, and we will dwell with Him forever. That's our exposition of the passage. I want to turn to application in three brief points. First, as... John kept first things first. I want to do likewise. The foundation of all these blessings, our first point of application, is to receive forgiveness of sins in Christ. If you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you do not have the Father, and you can do nothing to please Him. The whole of the Christian life, the whole of the good life, the whole of eternal satisfaction begins with knowing your sin. Knowing God's authority as the Creator, knowing His righteous requirement, and knowing how far, how dismally far we have fallen short. And then in looking to Christ, the one who is from the beginning, the eternal, incarnate word of life, whom John, John who wrote these words, had the privilege of seeing and hearing and touching, and walking this earth with, storing up for us His words, bearing witness to His sufferings, suffering the condemnation that we rightly deserve. The glorious, eternal Son of God made a man, and then made to be the laughingstock of men. Pouring out his life, pouring out his blood as a ransom for all his people. So that in him we would receive his righteousness in exchange for our wretchedness. If you have not turned from your sin to trust in Christ, to yield to him in his word, let today be the day of salvation. Trust in Christ and receive mercy. And if you want to talk about what that looks like, and if you want to talk about how you can know if you really have it, you're The the members of this church, the brothers and sisters, the pastors of this church would love to talk with you today about what it is to know Christ and to have forgiveness and mercy in Him. Secondly, in application, if you have received forgiveness of sins in Christ, then treasure the inheritance you have. Treasure your inheritance in Christ. John here wanted to remind us of all that we have in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3 It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Brother and sister, remember. Remember what God has done for us in Christ. That he has reconciled us to himself once and for all. That he has caused us to know him personally, truly, and unchangeably. And that he has given us victory over the evil one that his word remains in us and will cause us to persevere until the end. As we treasure our inheritance in Christ, we need to also see and remember the deceitfulness of what the world offers as a counterfeit. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 remind us, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The blessings that truly matter in this life are not the ones that we touch with our hands. The blessings that truly matter in this life are the ones that we look forward to. The eternal hope of an inheritance with Christ, which we will touch then with glorified hands that are unstained by sin. As we treasure our inheritance in Christ, we also need to remember not to envy those who are bound for destruction, but instead to pity them. In Psalm 73 Asaph begins, saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In the church, the world loves to highlight for us the prosperity of the wicked. The world loves to highlight for us how well people are doing who have no fear of God. ...how wealthy they can be... ...how much pleasure they can enjoy. The psalmist here describes the prosperity of the wicked in Psalm 73... ...and he describes the sufferings of the upright. He says that he didn't know how to understand it for a time. Then he goes on in verse 17 and he says... "...until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction... Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Church, we need to remember when we see others who seem to be enjoying the good life, who seem to be enjoying the pleasures of this world, that their end is destruction. And so we need to not have contempt for them, but we need to have pity on them that we would desire that they would see what they're missing out on. That in all the treasures and pleasures of this world, there is no lasting happiness, but only in Christ. And then our third point of application, very simply, love the Father, not the world. See, for all the understandings that we have of how vain worldly pleasure is, we cannot turn ourselves away from the cravings of the flesh simply by trying to avoid sin. The only way that we can turn away from the cravings of the flesh is to turn towards a new appetite that craves the things of God. One of my companions, as I've been considering this passage over the last several weeks, was Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century Scottish professor of theology. His sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, addressed this very passage some 200 years ago. His short work is certainly worth considering deeply, so if you have not read it or heard it, I would encourage you to look it up. You can find it published online or in print. You can find it as a, a, an audiobook. Crossway publishes as a free audiobook in their podcast. It is definitely worth a listening or two, a reading or two or three, and some deep consideration. There, Thomas Chalmers describes how impossible it is for the human heart to operate without any desires or affections, And so he writes, The way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object, the world, is to fasten it in positive love to another. It is not by merely exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away with, and all things are to become new. He goes on to say the love of God and the love of the world are two affections, not merely in a state of rivalship, but in a state of enmity, and that's so irreconcilable that they cannot dwell together in the same person. If we try to rip the love of the world out by moral determination, focusing our efforts on abstaining from the love of the world, abstaining from the pleasures of this world, then we will certainly fail. Fail. We may even fall into greater enslavements to sin and greater temptations and greater suffering under our strivings. But what if we have the love of God growing in our hearts? If we have the love of God growing in our hearts, then the love of the world will be forced out as a natural and necessary consequence. Our love for Christ and our enjoyment of Him will draw our affections heavenward. The Apostle Paul likewise describes the consequence of fixing our eyes on Christ in 2 Corinthians 3.18 where he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, church, as we fix our eyes on Christ in all His glory, the Holy Spirit conforms us into His image. The Holy Spirit progressively replaces our fleshly cravings with holy cravings. We see His glory, and He becomes to us the pearl of great price that is worth forsaking anything this world could offer us to possess. And so our striving is turned from pursuing fleeting worldly pleasure to pursuing true and eternal pleasure in Christ and in His kingdom. I want to close our time together with a, a portion of a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Entitled Desires. It says, May I never be insistent for earthly blessings, but always refer them to your fatherly goodness, for you know what I need before I ask. May I never think I prosper unless my soul prospers, or think that I am rich unless I am rich towards you, or think that I am wise unless I am wise unto salvation. May I seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. May I value things in relation to eternity. May my spiritual welfare be my chief concern. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and have your blessing rather than to be successful in enterprise or have more than my heart can wish or be admired by my fellow men if by those things I would be made to forget you. May I regard the world as dreams lies, vanities, as vexation of spirit, and desire to depart from it. And may I seek happiness in your favor, your image, your presence, and in your service. Church, may this be our desire today and always because of the great treasure that we have in Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we marvel at your grace to wretched sinners like us. We marvel that you would give your own son to shed his blood for us. God, in view of your mercy, we thank you for all that we have in Christ. We thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins and reconciled us to yourself. So we no longer stand before you if we're in Christ as your enemies, awaiting your judgment. But instead, we get to come before you as your children, expecting to receive love and tenderness and kindness, expecting to receive help in our times of need, expecting to receive guidance and counsel and strength for the challenges of life in this world. God, we thank you that by the blood of your Son, you have made us strong, so that we have nothing to fear from Satan, that we have nothing to fear from those who would seek to lead us astray. God, we ask that you would cause your word to abide in us, you would cause us to persevere in trusting your word, and so to stand firm, not being tossed to and fro by winds of doctrine being able to see, to understand the truth of your word as your spirit applies it to our hearts, and being able to stand firm against those who would contradict you. God, we ask that you would cause us as we live in this world not to fear the world, to have mercy towards the unbelievers, to have compassion towards those who do not know the hope of Christ, to have pity on those who stand today condemned, God, we ask that you would guard us against the love of the world. That you would cause us not to think that the joy of our lives, the contentment of our lives will be found in comfort. Not to think that it will be found in pleasure. Not to think that it will be found in being esteemed by others. But that you would cause us to see that all our joy, all our eternal pleasure is found in Christ alone. God, we ask that you would take our hearts, that you would let them be always holy. For you are king. and pray for those in our midst here today who have not yet received mercy, who stand today under your condemnation. God, we ask that you would convict them by your word that's been preached. We ask that you would cause them to see their need of Christ That you would cause them to see the the fleetingness and the folly of pursuing pleasure in this world only. That you would cause them to run to Christ. To find in him all that they need for eternal life and joy and peace. God, we know that you are able to do it by your spirit. We ask that you would draw your saints to yourself today. That you would strengthen us. you would strengthen us to obey your will and so to abide with you forever That help us to fix our eyes on christ the author and the perfecter of our faith and to take our joy and hope in him we pray in his precious name amen i'd like to invite you to stand now for the benediction